Oh, beautiful, Lord, we thank you that you show us that the earth is full of your beauty, the beauty we see in uh, others, the beauty we see in our uh, loved ones, the beauty we see in the colors, the beauty even in the dreary and the winter, the changing of seasons, the beauty in the colors, the beauty in the thousands of varieties of species of beetles that you have made. Oh, Lord, the beauty of diversity, and yet, Lord, the beauty of unity that all together points to you. We pray this morning that as we look at your word, we gaze upon it, that we would gaze upon your beauty and love you more for it. We ask this in the name of the beautiful one, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Good morning. Well, uh, good morning, everyone. Glad you're able to be with us. We, uh, we come in our, kind of the middle point, I suppose, roughly. I'm not sure if we've uh, calculated it out. The midpoint of our uh, class on the Bible, on Scripture, the, the doctrine of Scripture, the qualities of Scripture. Uh, we, we're looking, we're kind of moving from the Bible is inspired, the Bible is authoritative, the Bible is clear, the Bible is necessary. We're moving from those angles to kind of begin to hit some of the questions, the hot topics, the topics I had in college, the ones that still appear today sometimes. We're slowly transitioning into the questions of, for example, the canon. Right? We'll look at that uh, maybe next, next week and then January, you know, um, as I've mentioned before, there are 200 Gospels, so why do we have these four? We'll answer that question in the weeks to come. There are 200 so-called Gospels. Why, why these four here? Uh, but before we stop there, before we hit that question, today we're just going to look at something that really is neglected. We're going to look at a topic that usually is not covered, I think in part because uh, Christians who care about the Bible are so concerned to defend it. We're, we're hyper-concerned, we're too concerned in some ways about defending the Bible from critics. We're too concerned about uh, making double dog sure that you know that this is a good source to go to. We're too concerned in some circles about trying to make sure that we defend the Bible, that we forget, we forget to look at positively what is the Bible actually uh, meant to inspire in us? What's it meant to inspire in us? If it comes from God, it's not just good information. It's not just even good news for our lives. It's not just a manual on how to live. It's not simply uh, uh, the, the, the way to salvation. But if it comes from the God of beauty, if it comes from the God who is powerful, if it comes from the God who is one, then it should look like that. It should smell like that. It should feel that way. And so today we're going to look at a neglected in our day, not in, not in the past. We're going to look at what, uh, what you might call the, the divine qualities of the Bible. Those marks that we can point to that uh, give abundant evidence that it is the Word of God. We're not going to look here at a kind of a proof text model. We're not going to say, we're not going to look at uh, the 2 Timothy 3.16 I'm going to look at those uh, questions. We've covered those before. Instead, we're going to look at what makes it beautiful? What makes, it, what makes you attracted to this book? And I'll begin here, I suppose, by doing a little nerdy thing and quoting from our Presbyterian Confession of Faith. Uh, this is chapter 1, section 5. I printed out for you in the old English style. I changed the word doth to the word does. It's the only edit I made for you. You're welcome. But um, uh, that, that these guys... 150 guys, smart guys, they, they said this 500, 400 years ago. 
the heavenliness of the matter, that is the content, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, in other words, they, they go together, the scope of the whole to give glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, the many other incomparable excellencies, and the entire perfection thereof, or arguments whereby the Bible does, show itself to be the word of God. What does that all mean? Basically, we're going to put that in modern English today. Uh, first, we begin here um, with the category of the beauty of the Bible. The Bible is beautiful, and not just because mine has, you know, gold uh, trim on it or whatever it is. Uh, it's not beautiful because it's in a beautiful edition. But, very basically, um, the Bible from God smells like God. It bears the marks of God. It looks like God. It feels like God. It bears the very attributes of God Himself. And I suppose this is the question that I'll, I'll start us off with. How do you know when you've met God? How do you know when you've encountered God? How do you know when you've uh, been with God? I think when you look through the Bible, I'll answer it for you, don't worry. I have the answer right there anyway. When you look through the Bible, people who encounter God are awestruck. They don't just say, intellectually, I agree that you are a divine being and I'm not. That's, that's not how people talk, A and B. It's not what happens in the Bible. Rather, over and over again, when people meet with God, they are awestruck. You think, of course, of Isaiah chapter 6. Think of the way Isaiah is before, and even, even just in, in a vision, right? Before the throne of God, he, he's awestruck. He bows down. Do you think of John the same way? He, he goes before the angel revelation. The angel says, no, not me. I'm not God. Don't bow down to me. And that's just an angel. That's just an angel. It's not even the lamb himself. And what's funny is the, the Bible talks about itself in the same way. The Bible says that one of your responses to reading it should not immediately be critique, which is one of the ways we handle it, should not immediately be, what's my life application? How is this relevant to me? What's the nugget I can get out of it because I got 10 minutes before I have to jump in the car and get to work? Where's the nugget? It's not simply... Um, do I feel good when I read the Word of God? But if it actually is God speaking to you, it actually is God talking to you, if in some sense you're in the presence of God when this Word is read, it has that same beauty about it. It has that same beauty about it. But same awe. I give you some quotes here from, from the Psalms and from, from parts of the Bible, right? The law of the Lord's perfect. Psalm 19, 7. Uh, Psalm 27, 4. One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, to inquire in his temple. Revelation 4, 3, right? The, the description of Christ. Uh, if you want one more, I suppose, I can give you this right here. Uh, Psalm 119, 103. Psalm 119, 103. This is perhaps, if you need a proof text, 
I'm not super convinced of proof texting all the time, but I'll give you one here. How sweet are your words to my taste, the psalmist declares. Sweeter than honey to my mouth. God's words are sweet. That doesn't mean they're intellectually stimulating, though they are. That doesn't mean that they're uh, practically relevant, though they are. That doesn't mean that they uh, are, are simply there for you to use. Not simply there to make you proud. I know more than the other person. I'm a better Christian. No, they are meant to be sweet. The Bible, therefore, is the best candy store you can go to. It is the sweetest place you can go to. Now, the beauty here, the sweetness here, is not just an aesthetic one. It's not just that, um, you know, you look at the Psalms and it's beautiful poetry. You know, p- people have, have uh, they've made TV shows out of the, the life of David. I'm not talking about, I'm not, I'm not speaking about Christian TV shows, like, like non-Christian folks have made, have been stunned by the literary artistry of David and Saul and, and Jonathan and all the rest. It's literarily high class. It's up there with Homer. It's up there with Shakespeare. Not all the Bible is, because not all the Bible is written by uh, literary masters. Amos is not a highfalutin guy. Peter's not a highfalutin guy either. I mean, it's not true, but it's not equally uh, literarily beautiful. And so the argument that the the scriptures are beautiful is not an argument simply about its literary quality. Rather, it's a spiritual beauty. This is why um, Paul himself says, 1 Corinthians 2, 4 through 5, if you want, again, something to look up for fun, I'll quote it to you. Paul says, My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Therefore, where is the, if you had to choose, where is the beauty of Scripture seen most clearly? It's seen in, in the way it reflects Jesus. It's seen in the way it shows us Jesus Christ. You know, as, you, as you read through this, the descriptions of Christ in the Gospels, as you read through the way those are interpreted in, in the New Testament, the rest of the New Testament, the way that the Old Testament brings that expectation to mind, you're just stunned by who this guy is and what he does and what he says and how he acts. He is so much better than you are or I am. You're just stunned by him. Now, having said that, having just said it's not an aesthetic beauty, I think there is a parallel here, uh, even with uh, non-biblical literature. Why is it that some writing, some fiction, some literature is better than others? Why is it that we still read Moby Dick? We don't go hunt whales anymore. Why is it that we read the Scarlet Letter? Not just because it's assigned, but there is something about it. Um, There's an example here, I suppose. Romeo and Juliet. Romeo and Juliet was written by Shakespeare in the year 1593. That's great. Uh, what, what's funny is that there was an earlier version written by a guy named Arthur Brooke 31 years earlier, in 1562. Same general plot, same character, same name, different ending, different kind of feel, but very similar structure. Now, why do we love Shakespeare and not Arthur Brooke? 
It's not because Shakespeare fit with the cultural climate of Elizabethan England. In fact, if you look at it, Brooke's play was far more suited to the politics. It was far more, uh, what's the word, um, well, political. It was far more kind of preachy in a sense. Uh, it, it kind of named names. It talked about issues that were relevant to the day. But, and Shakespeare was actually pretty subversive. But what's interesting is it was the content of Shakespeare. It was uh, the way that resonated with the masses that ended up giving that Romeo and Juliet the claim. You know, you often hear, this is um, related to next week, you often hear people say, hey, the, the truth is written by the winners. You know, and so the Bible was written, the gospels that won out were the gospels that supported Constantine and supported, you know, the Christian status quo, which is usually reread as kind of a conservative status quo. Um, but the example of Shakespeare and Romeo and Juliet, I think, indicates here, it, it falsifies the idea that, quote, history is only written by the winners. First of all, I mean, as a historian, it's a very narrow view of what history is. You know, someday somebody will go through your belongings when you're dead. And your forks and your knives that you have, your silverware, that's history. You may not think of this such, but that, that's part of your history. And so history is not can be written by the winners. A book's acceptance, this is more for next week, is not simply by uh, those who are in power. Rather, it's survival of the best books, survival of the fittest books. Survival of the most beautiful books. But uh, more on that down, down the road. Um, any questions before we turn to the power of Scripture? That's the beauty of Scripture. Secondly, the power of the Bible. Questions on the beauty. I mean, there's so much more I could say here. The beauty of the Bible. Or pushback, comments, cares, concerns. All right. The power of the Bible. We know that Scripture feels like God, not just because uh, it says beautiful things, it displays the beauty of Christ, but it does beautiful things as well. It does things to us. It's not just an object that I read and I master and I know and I memorize and I understand and I'm the expert. Actually, the Bible is the master of you. And that's really the humble way the Christian ought to approach the Word of God. The Bible masters you, it masters me. Of course, just to give a few examples here, you have it in your outline, the teaching of Scripture, they bring wisdom. They're useful. I know I've been harping on the, the negativity of that, but there is an actual role. The, they are applicable. They are valuable. Of course they are. They give light to our dark paths. They give peace. They provide comfort. They give joy to the heart. They, they've given you that. If you've read the Bible, if you've, you've had peace. You've had joy. You've, you've needed comfort and you've gone there. You've gotten it. In other words, it's not simply the Bible says it's God's Word, but the Bible does stuff that God's Word only can do to your life. The Bible shows itself to be God's Word by how it affects you and how it affects others. It's powerful. It's effective. There's this idea in the Bible that it diagnoses you instead of you diagnosing it. It examines, it, it unveils your heart. This is what Hebrews talks about when it says that the Word is living. And it's, like, it's like a beast almost. It's living. It's active. It's hunting you out. I know for some of y'all... Um, 
of a certain generation, you may have heard of the poem, The Hound of Heaven, maybe a story, I forget if it's a poem or a story, but I'll, I see at least one, one smile, so somebody's aware of it. Thank you, Greg. Um, the Hound of Heaven. This is the language that Christ is hunting you down. He's stalking you. In fact, this is Psalm 23, right? The very ending of Psalm 23. Comfort shall follow me all the days of my life. That word follow there is like a stalking. You have a stalker. God stalks you. He stalks you with his comfort. He hunts you down with his word. That's why when Paul speaks about what he does, he says, hey, um, I'm not a peddler like those guys. But even those guys, when they proclaim the word of God, uh, they're doing what I do, which is simply bringing life to those who are living and bringing death to those who are dying. The word kills and the word makes alive. This is what we mean when we, when we talk about the Bible as a, quote, means of grace. This is very important. Um, the Bible does not just pass along data. You know, uh, we're Presbyterians, so we can be a little nerdy at times. Um, myself certainly included in that. But the Bible is not meant simply for you to, to memorize it. If you simply memorize the Bible, that does not make you a wise person. does not make you a good person. doesn't make you a better person if you treat it as mere data. not saying you should memorize it. Please memorize it. Good. Valuable. If it's used. If, it, if you let it have its effect on you. That's where it comes alive. That's where it comes alive. Um, therefore, the Bible, when attended by the Holy Spirit, it changes you. It changes you in one way or another. And I suppose that's a kind of way to jumpstart next week as well. Um, I hate putting things off so much, but I will do it again one more time. Uh, the Roman Catholic argument is that the church makes up the Bible. It makes up the canon. That's the, the Dan Brown argument. You know, the Constantine decided it. The Council of Nicaea, he kind of forced it through. And that's why we have the New Testament. And there were, again, 200 other Gospels that could have been out there that were equally valid. We'll, we'll see why that's not really a, a fair history or a fair reading. But one of the reasons why that's wrong um, is that the Bible is not so much shaped by the church. The Bible creates the church a very important principle to understand. You're going to get the church right. The Bible makes the church. If you want an easy example of that, think about God. God makes the world. And then he remakes it. He remakes his new world. And where is this new world seen? It's seen in the church, most clearly. In Christ and in his bride. I don't have time to belabor the point, unfortunately, but uh, merely mention it. Um, so the power, the efficacy, Another one of the qualities that shows you this is not simply uh, human ingenuity, but it is really God's Word. And the place I want to camp out mostly today is going to be this, this third, this final um, quality of Scripture. Before I go there, any questions on the power of, of Scripture? Power, the efficacy. Okay, cool, cool. We'll move on to the, uh, the harmony, the unity. Pretty interchangeable terms, but the Bible's harmony. I prefer harmony. It's less, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's less kind of uh, maybe structural in a little bit. Uh, three kinds of harmony, three kinds of unity here. Um, 
This is what our confession refers to when it says the consent of all the parts. Uh, the Bible shows that God is a God of harmony. God is a God of unity. He is consistent with Himself. And therefore, any document that claims to be God's Word needs to be self-consistent. If it comes from a God who is a God of order, it needs to look like that and feel like that. Now, that can be a little vague. I mean, you can say harmony and unity. You can kind of put a lot of things in there. So what do we actually mean? Consistent regard to what? I think three areas of, of unity, three areas of consistency. First, a doctrinal unity. When you examine the parts of the Bible, that there is unity when it comes to who God is. There is unity when it comes to what we are as humans, our creation, our fall. There is unity when it comes to Jesus Christ as the Messiah. You've all seen it. You all know it. Especially nowadays, in December, you get all those charts about the Old Testament prophecies of Jesus Christ and how they are answered, how they're fulfilled. That's great. That's one example of the way across thousands of years. A consistent, unified, harmonized testimony of Jesus Christ, of a Messiah, was given. There's therefore a doctrinal, uh, a, a doctrinal unity. I'm not going to get into that too much. I don't know if you have any questions on any of that. Second, there is a redemptive historical unity. Now, that's a fancy term. I'll, I'll lay it out for you. Redemptive historical unity. If I were to ask you where the gospel is first stated in the Bible, where would it be? What would you say? Where is the gospel first stated? That's great, Greg. Yeah. Genesis 3.15. Make it a cute little dot right here. Fair warning, there, there are going to be a couple of drawings now. You know this means it's going to be bad, since I'm the one drawing. But uh, that's, that's the way of it. Right? There's going to be one coming who will slay the dragon, who will kill the serpent. He shall bruise your heel. You shall crush his head. That's what they call the, the first gospel. The first good news that comes. Again, you know, you know, this is not, uh, it's not, not, not terribly difficult. It's one point. It's one declaration. What do we see from then on? See that God begins to display himself in a wider and wider way by means of a covenant. He purposes to redeem his people and his redemption plan is not given to Eve in one fell swoop. And I'm putting this on recording, so it's my own fault. It just comes back on me, but the Bible is a progressive book. The Bible is a progressive book. God does not reveal himself all at once. It progresses. His plan of redemption, his aim of salvation progresses through history. It comes in Genesis 3.15 and, and, and then it goes, uh, it, it goes to, to one whole, uh, one whole um, tribe, one whole family, Abraham, 
right? Genesis 12, 15, 17. And then it increases, right? And it goes to Moses. It goes to Mount Sinai. And suddenly from, from one tribe or one family, you, you, you now have one whole nation. Out of all the nations in the world, not just a, a family, not just Abraham and 300 guys that are in his army, but a whole nation. And then it goes. Eventually, of course, uh, uh, past David and into the new covenant, into Christ. What do we have? We have not just a whole nation, but the whole world. And this plan of redemption is unified. It's unified. It's not simply that there is doctrinal unity, that all the doctrines line up. But there is what we would call uh, redemptive historical unity. And maybe the way to think about it is there was a concern for the early church as to whether or not the New Testament was a sequel. There was concern whether or not the New Testament was a sequel to the Old Testament. That was what they were aiming for. That was what they were looking for. That's what they were hoping for. And this is why the classic, one of the classic places you'll find this stated is in the road to Emmaus. Luke 24. We can look here at verse, uh, verse 25 where Christ meets these, these people, uh, the, these two disciples that they've told him uh, haven't you heard what's happened? You know the story. Uh, we had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. We thought he was going to be the Messiah. We thought this was the new covenant. We thought this was the sequel. We were wrong, obviously. What does he say? He says to them, 24, 25, Luke, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. His appeal to the Old Testament. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Jesus Christ reads all of scripture as about himself. He says, what's the point of the Old Testament? He says, if you ignore the Old Testament, you're slow of heart. Not because the Old Testament is is simply good in itself. Because it points to me. It shows you me. And then, of course, in, uh, in verse 44 and following, he says to his disciples in that weird ghosty encounter where he eats and yet he appears like a ghost. It's fascinating. Can't get into all that right now. He says... These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. There's more to go. There's, of course, the more to go there. But the point is, in Luke 24, twice Christ says, what's the Old Testament about? It's about me. It's about me. There is a unity here. Um, It is in the Jesus of the New Testament that Israel's history reaches its climax. Therefore, it's not just that there's a bunch of fun stories about Joseph or a bunch of cool stories you learn in Sunday school about Abraham or whomever, but it's that the entire Bible is 
one overarching grand plan of salvation. And the Bible where we use for this, it's the problem is because the problem we have is that the Bible uses this, this weird word that we throw, throw around a lot but don't necessarily understand. The Bible talks about this primarily with two words, kingdom and covenant. The Bible talks about it in these words that we Americans in the modern day don't ever really use except to mock the kingdoms. You know, we, we, we laugh a little bit at the monarchy. We're a little bit jealous of the Brits. The only time we use a covenant is with, with the HOA. And that makes us less inclined to use the word covenant in the future, in my personal experience. No offense to anybody who's on the HOA boards. The point, therefore, is that it's the language that the Bible uses that can make it challenging for us to see that there's one grand overarching plan of deliverance, salvation, rule. Jesus is what makes the Bible one book. So let me hit that in kind of a structural unity in the last five to ten minutes that I have with us. Any uh, questions before we move on? Rusty, I see your hand raised a little bit. Yes, sir. As I see through the Bible, is the justice of God. God is a just God. And we see that in Genesis when we start talking about, you know, bruising and, and crushing. And we, and we look throughout the Bible and we see that Christ is the fulfillment of the justice of God. Hmm. And I think that in today's society, we've lost that completely. Mm -hmm. We look at God as being just a loving God. We don't see the justice of God. Mm -hmm. But I think it's what you, one of the unifying themes mm -hmm. throughout Scripture. Yeah. That's a good point, Rusty. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm also say that we, we kind of mischaracterize justice in a lot of ways. And we, we, we look at God really as kind of failing to live up to justice. You know, because that's the, the Old Testament God's real mean God. He's a meaning, right? And that's how we kind of get around that. But I, th I think you pointed it out correctly that there is uh, one of many themes. I mean, the love of God is a theme. The justice of God is a theme. They're both present. They need, they need kind of equal airtime. Yeah, that's a good point. Other questions? Okay. All right, now it's time to blow our minds. Let's go ahead and go to the, uh, the structural unity of, uh, of, of, of the Scriptures. Um, the Bible itself, the canon itself that's given... Um, is given in terms of a, an overarching, overall uh, covenantal structure. What do I mean by that? Every covenant, uh, covenant simply is an agreement between two parties, often came in the, in the form of a treaty. You know, the, the, we belong to NATO as the U.S., the North Atlantic, North Atlantic Treaty Organization, and that's spelled out in a huge document. And the last year or two, people have become really familiar with Article 4 and Article 5 of that document, which details what NATO members do when one is attacked. Like Poland, for example, is very close to being attacked right now with the war in Ukraine. Would that mean that NATO would fight Russia? People, people discuss those things. Uh, the Bible is also patterned after a covenant treaty document. And there are three parts that really matter for our purposes today. Uh, and the order is somewhat significant here. I'll give them to you. A covenant begins with a uh, history prologue that tells, hey, this is what's happened. This is how we come to this relationship. You and I meeting here. I come from this area. You come from that area. I've done this, et cetera. You've done that. 
second. There are uh, what you might call the terms of the covenant, or the fancy word for that is the stipulations. I will do this, you will do that. Sometimes if it's between equals, between God and us, it ain't equals. When God enters into covenant with his people, it's not between two partners. It's not like you and your business partner. It's not even like you and the HOA, I suppose. Um, it's between unequals. So God says, look, I'm the big king. I'm the head honcho. I'm the Lord. You're the servant. I will protect you. And you will promise to obey. Other things come into play there, right? But often it's, I'll do this. And then finally, there are curses if you fail. Usually today we pay money. And if you are, we have jail time. If you fail to keep up your, your, your side of the bargain, if you default, there's going to be penalties on the agreements you enter into. And we have lawyers here who can tell you all the, all the ins and outs of that. Um, but the Bible itself comes in roughly this threefold form. Let me kind of show this to you, if I can. Um, both in Old Testament and New Testament form. To make the obvious point, the word testament is the word covenant. Maybe we don't think, we never, we don't think that way. Because we're so ingrained in thinking of the old, the OT and the NT, but you could just call it in one way, the OC and the NC. If you wanted to, OC, not Orange County, but Old, old, old Covenant. Um, old Covenant, New Covenant. Let me show this to you. Let me kind of just lay it out for you in a very poorly drawn chart or whatever. <clears throat> OTNT, we have history. The history starts in the, uh, hopefully the blue pen, the blue marker works. It starts in the Pentateuch. The first five books of the Bible, the Torah, classically called Genesis through Deuteronomy. What do we have there? We have the history. We have the great actions of God, particularly the Exodus. The corresponding part to that in the New Testament are the Gospels, where we have new Moses, Jesus. We have the new Moses, the new mediator, Jesus Christ. And then if you want to kind of tack on to that, I suppose I could tack on a kind of extra history part. You have the book of Joshua. What happened in the book of Joshua? God's people together enter into a new terrain. They conquer a new people. They move into a promised land. The parallel of that in the New Testament is, somebody said it, Acts. Yes, very good, Greg. God's people, God's new covenant people. They may move into a new promised land. What's the promised land? The whole world. The whole world. And so you kind of cut off with Joshua, and judges can kind of you know, qualify that to some degree. You have, you have the history of God's people. And then what? Well, you have the terms. You have the stipulations, the terms of the covenant, and these are laid out to, to lesser or greater degree, both in Deuteronomy and in the prophets. The prophets say, look, you're going to go into exile if you keep doing this. Ahab, what are you doing? 
Jeroboam, why are you splitting off? If you do this, if you're a covenant breaker, you're going to fail. You keep doing it year after year after year. And the corollary to that, that kind of explains the history, are um, the epistles. That explains, here is how God's new covenant people are to live in light of Jesus Christ. To put it in a slightly different way, God does not simply give redemptive acts without explaining those redemptive acts. He gives redemption and he gives revelation. They go together. God acts and then God explains his actions. Finally, the curses. Finally, the curses. Uh, these come in part in the, um, in the apocalyptic books. So, for example, Daniel, Ezekiel, portions of Jeremiah. And the corollary of that would be the book of Revelation. As I mentioned last week, I think this is why the whole Bible ends with a covenant curse. If you add to this book or take away from it, you're going to get plagues. You're going to be cursed. Therefore, the, the canon itself comes in broad strokes. I recognize this may not be, you know, uh, entirely detailed per se, but you can look here on the back to see what I'm, what I'm talking about. Um, therefore, the New Testament is a new covenant. It is the sequel to the Old Testament. There are these basic parallels. And just to show you, give you, give you one more little drawing, there is a narrowing down of the focus of salvation. Just as there's an expansion of God's people, there's also a narrowing. There's a narrowing down from Moses into one king, David, and one location, Jerusalem. That's the that's another part of the structure of the Old Testament is to focus on one big tribe and nation and then narrow it down as the king goes, so the people go. That's the great principle of the book of, of Samuel and Kings. As the king is obedient, so the people are rewarded. What happens in the New Testament? Well, there's a focus on the son of David. Right? The New Testament starts with David's son. David and his son at Jerusalem. And then what happens? There's an expansion all the way from Jerusalem and David's son into, again, the world, right? And it's better than what came before. It's not simply one nation, but it's the whole, the whole world. Therefore, there's a reverse of, uh, of the Old Testament. So uh, we're going to hit one last question here, and then, uh, uh, then we'll stop. Any, any comments on that before I hit the real big question in two minutes or so? Maybe to whet your appetite for next week. Did the New Testament authors know they were writing Scripture? I answered this briefly before, saying, yes, let me qualify it. They, of course, did not know they were writing, you know, number four of 27. They didn't know, oh, I'm writing uh, the gospel according to John. They didn't know they were writing a book that would slot into that number in the canon. No, of course not. Uh, however, when you use the word, when you look at the, the, the structure of the covenants, when you look at the history of God's redemption, 
you realize that there was an expectation among early Christians, among first century Jews, that there would be a new deliverance. God never acts to save his people without telling them afterwards about it. This is the Ten Commandments. This is Sinai, the Exodus, the supreme event of salvation. God saves his people and then tells them what that means. Ten Commandments. What's the first part of the Ten Commandments? It's not the first commandment. There's a prologue. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I've given you grace. I've saved you. I've done this for you. Therefore, do these things. And a lot of folks misread the Ten Commandments because they think they're just law. They don't come in the bubble of grace, the bubble of the gospel. A lot of folks misunderstand that. So they, 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 wreck, they, they hurt themselves as Christians. Uh, so there's this pattern in the Old Testament that recurs in the New Testament of redemption and revelation. If I put it here, if God just redeemed without saying anything, it's like watching a silent film. Y'all ever watch silent films that much? Y'all, y'all like them? I think the last one I saw was in college, Metropolis. It was a good film, but uh, classic film, I suppose, but um, I wouldn't do it like more than once. I don't like those sort of things, but um, we don't watch silent movies these days. We need speaking. Um, therefore, we look here and we see, just briefly, that there was apostolic self-awareness that they were writing Scripture. Mark 1.1, 1, 1, the opening phrase, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That word gospel, you know it, euangelion, or the gospel of Jesus Christ, not used uh, simply to refer to written documents, but to refer to apostolic preaching. This is not just an intro. Mark is telling you, I am writing authoritative Scripture. I am proclaiming something here. You can look at 1 Thessalonians 2.13. Paul says, look, you don't receive this as the word of man, but as what it really is, the word of God. He says, I understand. I am not simply writing a random letter to my pals and sending it by the post office. I am actually writing Scripture, the Word of God. I don't usually quote uh, Tom Wright, but um, qualified acceptance of what he says uh, generally. But right here, I think he makes a, a brilliant point. He says, look, it used to be said the New Testament writers, quote, didn't think they were writing Scripture. That's hard to sustain historically today. The fact their writings were occasional, you know, ran, re- letters randomly, is not the point. At precisely those points of urgent need, Paul is most conscious that he is writing as one authorized by the apostolic call he received from Christ in the power of the Spirit to bring life and order to the church by his words. So, um, did they know they're writing the Bible? Yeah, they did. Simple as that. Next week, we'll look at kind of uh, what all this means for the make of the Bible. Why, why these books? Why are these in the canon? If we had this structure, I kind of alluded to some of that, but what, why, why these books? So any questions? We have maybe time for one question or comment, care, concern, push back, doxological prayer, utterance. Okay. Well, let me let me go ahead and close this in prayer then. Almighty God, we come before you. We, we bask in your beauty. We 
stand amazed at your power. We uh, glory in the harmony of your word. Um, help us not just to uh, ransack your Bible like we're ransacking creation. But not just to use your word as a weapon or a tool and to discard it when we're done like we throw out plastic silverware. But Lord, help us instead to receive your word, to be humbled by it, to uh, love it and cherish it, not because we love words on the page, but because they come from your mouth. May your spirit make these words alive for us by illuminating our minds and our hearts to see. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.